It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm your host, Julie Perkins, here with a very special President's Day show. I've got three presidential experts, and you're going to learn some interesting facts, and I know we're going to have a great hour discussion. Uh, over the phone, I'm joined by Ed Lengel, the Chief Historian at the White House Historical Association, and Paul Sparrow, the Director of the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. I'm also joined in studio with Aaron Mass, who's the CEO and Executive Director of President Lincoln's Cottage here in Washington, D.C. Um, welcome, everybody. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for having us, Julie. Thank uh, you. So, Ed, why don't you um, give a brief bio of yourself and, and of the association? So I am Chief Historian of the White House Historical Association, which is located in Washington, D.C., an historic Decatur house that was originally built by uh, U.S. Capitol architect Benjamin Latrobe for the great naval war hero Stephen Decatur in 1819, and he died there. It's right near the White House. The association was founded by Jackie Kennedy in 1961 uh, as a, an independent nonprofit organization that's dedicated to preserving and spreading the history and knowledge of the White House as a building, but also working to facilitate preservation of the arts within the White House, the furniture, and also knowledge of the presidency and the first families. Uh, I'm also the author of several books on George Washington and World War One. Yes, I remember um, learning when I was younger about Mrs. Kennedy coming to the White House and and being alarmed, I suppose, at the, the the preservation and the state of some of the rooms and very famously contacted, I imagine, some of her um, well-to-do friends and um, celebrities and starting that association. And, and um, didn't she uh, take a, a long time to sort of, there was a renovation at the beginning of their um, term? Well, Jackie Kennedy was a remarkable woman and clearly one of the most remarkable, if not the most remarkable, first ladies uh, ever to inhabit the White House. The White House was built in 1800, finished in 1800, and opened then. It was burned by the British in 1814 and then rebuilt. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt was the first one to renovate the White House in 1902, and then Harry Truman fully renovated the White House from 1948 to 52. He gutted the inside of the building, preserving the furnishings uh, and the art and the artwork, obviously, but tore out all the walls, all the floors, and rebuilt the whole interior. So 
what you see there now in terms of the structure really dates from Harry Truman's time. Hmm. Well, what Jackie Kennedy discovered when uh, she entered the White House in 1961 was that the building was certainly in great shape, but the the art and the furniture, uh, much of it had disappeared over the years. It had been uh, lost or it had been sold uh, sometimes literally at uh, auctions on the lawn in the 19th century. She fix, fixated, because she loved France so much, on uh, the suite of Belanger furniture that James Monroe had bought uh, and brought into the White House in the early 19th century, which had much of it had been lost. And so she was instrumental in recovering many of these pieces, restoring them, and bringing them back into the White House. You still find these things around. I was at the the Dwight D. Eisenhower farm in Gettysburg, a wonderful place the other day, and there's a fireplace a mantelpiece in there that dates from Andrew Jackson uh, that was taken out by Ulysses Grant and then moved into the Eisenhower hmm. farmstead later on. So there's a lot of stuff around. Wow. Um, that's, that's fascinating, that interesting what she did, and then... Um, a little sad that there's items still missing from our history. Um, and that brings me to Paul. Why don't you um, talk a little bit about yourself? Because as I, as I read, um, uh, FDR was the first one to grab onto the importance of preserving his papers as the president and, and create the first presidential Library Museum. That's correct. So I'm the director at the Franklin Roosevelt Presidential Library Museum here in Hyde Park. Uh, we share the site with the National Park Service that manages uh, his home. So he was actually born on this site, uh, grew up here. Uh, and then as president um, in 1938, about halfway through his second term, he started thinking about uh, his legacy and uh, wanted to build a space that, where he could house both the papers of his administration but also his extraordinary collection of personal objects. He had uh, a remarkable collection of ship models, um, naval prints, art, uh, books. He has 22,000 books in his personal collection, many very rare and valuable books. He wanted a place to put all these things, and he felt very strongly that he wanted to give them to the American public. At that point, when presidents left office, they just took everything with them. They left the furniture, but all of the documents, mm -hmm. all the materials, everything they were given were considered their personal property. And so they just took it with them. And over the years, many of the records of the presidents have been destroyed, uh, either through neglect or through, uh, in some cases, they were burned or they were distributed or sold. So he really felt it was important to keep all of the records together, to have them in one place that historians could come. And he encouraged other members of his administration to donate their papers as well. So we have over 400 collections here of papers. Now, he assumed, he started this in 1938, he assumed that he would uh, leave the White House in 1941 uh, when the next president was elected. Uh, and then, of course, he ended up running for a third term and being elected to an unprecedented third term. So the presidential library opened in June of 1941 while he was president. <laughs> this is the only presidential library that was actually used by a sitting president, uh, and it really became the Northern White House. He was here uh, over 250 days during his presidency. Wow. And he came up here a lot. He would take a train from Washington up to Hyde Park. Uh, and it, it established a new precedence of uh, what they call 
deed of gift libraries where the presidents who came after him deeded their property back to the federal government and the American people so that they could form uh, the presidential libraries. And there are now uh, 13 presidential libraries uh, that exist uh, in various forms where the public-private partnership uh, has existed. And um, when's the 14th uh, scheduled to be open? Uh, well, the Obama Library is, is very interesting. The, the Obama Foundation has decided that they want to try to create a digital library, as he was the first digital president. Um, and so they want to try to help the National Archives develop a new technology to allow uh, all of the presidential records to be available online uh, rather than you know housed in a facility, because so much of the content generated during the Obama presidency was what they call born digital. Uh, so it's actually a very exciting new project and a new way for us to think about how we manage and maintain uh, presidential records going into the future. Hmm. That is fascinating. And um, my third guest, I was going to say last, but certainly not least, uh, Aaron, why don't you introduce yourself and um, tell us about the Lincoln Cottage where not just uh, President Lincoln um, right. stayed there. That's right. Thank you, Julie. Um, my name is Erin Carlson-Mast. I'm the CEO and Executive Director of President Lincoln's Cottage at the Soldier's Home in Northwest Washington, D.C. Uh, we're on the grounds of the Armed Forces Retirement Home Campus, which is an independent federal agency. And we are a national monument and national historic landmark, but we're actually a nonprofit 501c3 public charity. A lot of people assume we're Park Service. Um, we're not, and we're actually the only national monument in the entire country that doesn't receive federal operating support. We're entirely supported by earned income and contributions. Yeah, I was uh, surprised about that because um, I'm a local and um, it was always off limits. Uh, That's right. And then I remember when it was open to the public and I didn't know that that was when it uh, flipped to the 501 uh, C3 status. Yeah, it took us about eight years to do the capital restoration and we opened to the public in 2008. We just had our 10-year anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, but I also think that it, uh, the story of us having to even resurrect this place mm-hmm. um, and putting it in its rightful place in history underscores that if these places are shut off, um, we start to lose that history as a country. And so it really underscores the importance of preservation and making things publicly accessible. But Lincoln was there for over a year of his presidency. He first wrote out um, the day a few days after his inauguration, and he last rode out to the cottage the day before his assassination. I read that. Yeah. That 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 kind of got me. It, um, yeah, it really bookends his time as president. And a lot of people, you know, I mean, it, it seems like an idyllic retreat. It's on a hilltop. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, we overlook uh, downtown Washington, D.C., uh, but it really put Lincoln closer to the war and, and gives us an interesting lens on his humanity and his style of leadership, uh, you know, the, a lot of people also don't realize that the predecessor of Arlington National Cemetery is just a couple hundred yards away. Yeah. So Lincoln's first summer in residence, not only is he developing the Emancipation Proclamation, and some scholars refer to it as the cradle of the Emancipation Proclamation, but he's also seeing thousands of soldiers buried in plain view. Oh. Um, okay. Uh, we actually have to take a break. And uh, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m., And we'll continue our discussion after this break and a word from our sponsor. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Um, I thought it would be appropriate that we start uh, our discussion about presidents with um, our first president, George Washington. Um, and um, Ed, um, I I recall there being like the holiday for Lincoln and the holiday for Washington, and then it became President's Day. I was associate President's Day with those two. Um, how would you describe the example, and why do you think George Washington is held up in um, the greatest esteem? Uh, there's been some um, reflection uh, on him, but uh, he's he has to be one of the most beloved and admired presidents we've, we've ever had. There are many aspects of of Washington that are outstanding, and I spent uh, 20 years directing the the editing of Washington's papers in a project at the University of Virginia, so I've spent a lot of time getting to know the man and, and writing about the man. Obviously, the example of his personal integrity and his understanding that his own integrity would help to define the office of the presidency is is extremely important. He knew that he was setting a precedent for all of those who would follow in the presidential office. That was extremely important. I think also, though, we tend to forget sometimes that he was a man of great vision. He was a man who thought very big. He thought with big concepts that could be stated simply. I always love this letter that he wrote just before he became president in 1789, he wrote to a relative to his kind of explaining what he intended to do as president. And he said, to build the national prosperity shall be my first and my only aim. And that was, that was the focus of, of what he wanted to do. So he also set that, that precedent of a strongly structured federal government mm-hmm. that would work within certain terms and procedures that would not become an imperial presidency, but would, on the other hand, be a strong, uh, more or less independent presidency balanced by, by the checks and balances of the Constitution. And all of those all of those examples and the example of trustworthiness mm-hmm. uh, were part of his character right there's the i don't well i'm talking to the expert but uh what i what i thought were myths about it you know the chopping down the cherry tree um but his it was all about how honest he was um him and president lincoln i suppose also has that uh, moniker, but um, well, yeah, and every president, to some degree, has 
has a mythology surrounding them. I think you've got here three of the most uh, myth-generating presidents, as Paul and Aaron both know. Uh, Lincoln, of course, had his own mythology. FDR has a mythology surrounding him and many misconceptions. Washington, much of his mythology dates from the early 19th century in the sense that after he was gone, Americans felt this tremendous feeling of loss and this feeling of insecurity and wanting to get back in touch with him. So many of the stories about Washington attempt to personalize him and attempt to help him to represent certain types of Americans. And so there are political myths about Washington. There are personal myths. There are uh, all types all types of mythologies that they're really intended to make him part of the national narrative and the national story. I think the storytelling around each president is really a fascinating topic. Oh, I agree. I agree. Um, Woodrow Wilson, you said you were also um, uh, uh, an author, and I I haven't read the book. I read the description of the book uh, about uh, World War One and... I am familiar with the battle, and I'm probably going to mispronounce the French name, the Meuse-Argonne. Um, right. And did I get it right? Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, what made you um, turn to that topic? You have, you know, George Washington from that era, and then you have World War One. What was the what was the draw? For me, the story of World War I is a personal story. Uh, I'm related to Alvin C. York, who is a close cousin of mine, uh, and so I have a, a personal connection there. But more broadly, the topic... You mean Sergeant York? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, Sergeant York of the, uh, the Gary Cooper movie. Yeah, well... Yeah, I'm yeah. related to him on, my, on yeah. my mom's side. But I think each story of those who experience that war is a personal story, and I'm fascinated by how individuals, men and women, experienced the unprecedented and what they did with it. Uh, and so I wrote this book called To Conquer Hell about the Mizargon, the biggest and bloodiest battle in American history. And I have another book called Never in Finer Company about uh, the Great War's Lost Battalion and the journalist Damon Runyon. But Woodrow Wilson also is, as a president, I think, a fascinating topic. I work with the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library in Stanton, Virginia. Wilson obviously is coming under increased scrutiny in recent years because of his racial policies. Uh, but nevertheless, I think he is one of our most important presidents as we're now in our centennial year of World War One. And there's one story I wanted to mention that I think is pertinent to the White House and the Wilson presidency in that 100 years ago, the White House was the center of protest. Right. Mm -hmm. And that uh, Alice Paul and the women of the National Women's Party, who were demonstrating for women's suffrage, decided right after the United States, or even right before the United States ended, entered World War I in the spring of 1917, to focus their public protests right at the White House, right in front of the White House to say that women need to have fully the right to vote across the entire country. And it, it was a very bold move 
because uh, here we are entering a world war, and uh, these women are deciding now is the time to call for suffrage right at the epicenter of American political life. Mm-hmm. And Woodrow Wilson has to ride in and out of the White House past these women every day. They're putting up these very cheeky posters uh, calling him Kaiser Wilson uh, and the rest, and uh, many of them are arrested. They're thrown into the Occoquan workhouse. They're force-fed in a really terrible moment, uh, and some of them are beaten in prison. Uh, and it it created this this type of a national movement that changed Wilson's mind. Wilson had three daughters. Uh, he was married twice. Uh, he was surrounded by women in the White House. It was really a woman's White House in many ways. And uh, even though people were very upset at these women, uh, they nevertheless created change at a very dramatic time. But it also shows the height and importance of the White House as a national symbol. So all of this was happening 100 years ago. Right. And as I understand it, um, they, it, the protests at the White House and the Capitol and just I guess the the seat of uh, what you pictured DC that area um, went on for years um, because the Nineteenth Amendment wasn't till what nineteen twenty or um, That's right yeah so did people just camp out for a couple of years or would it ebb and flow because it seemed like there were large crowds back then. Well, it was interesting in that Alice Paul, um, who was really a, a remarkable leader in her own right, decided to establish their headquarters in a building uh, right next to the White House. It was mm. literally so close that, according to stories, when they were uh, washing dishes in the White House after a meal, you could hear the door, the dishes rattle in uh, the headquarters of the National Women's Party. So they had a building right there, uh, which served as their base, but they had a daytime vigil uh, in front of the White House mm-hmm. for that was constant. It was not 24-7, but it was certainly seven days a week. And anytime you went in or out of the White House or walk near the White House, there they were. And I think it was the first kind of major protest movement at the White House, and it certainly served as an inspiration for other protests in the years to follow. Right. They uh, recognized the symbolism of camping out in front of what was what was then and probably still is one of the fun- most famous houses, you know, in the world, I would think. Yeah. Um, and especially in wartime. That mm-hmm. That is a very bold move, considering the very strong patriotism, patriotic movements in the country at the time, and people were out there shouting at the women, tearing their signs away, sometimes hitting them, uh, and calling them traitors for daring to protest at, at a moment like this. Wow. Wow. I hadn't realized how um, violent it had become outside the White House with the suffrage movement um, until I got ready for uh, uh, my conversation with you. I... I uh, I saw the the history of the beatings and the arrests, and then I also learned that um, the Nineteenth Amendment. Um, someone apparently sued about it because it went up to the Supreme Court, and 
now I have to go back and figure out which state um, or which entity uh, filed a lawsuit against it, um, unless you know offhand. Um, but that well, intrigued Wilson's the lawyer in me. Mind. Mm-hmm. Wilson's change of mind definitely had an important impact in getting Congress to uh, support the amendment, mm-hmm. uh, the 19th Amendment. Um, but there was a long process, uh, nevertheless, to get it through afterwards. It didn't happen instantaneously. Oh. Um, so now that we're talking about, I guess, the the birth of feminism in America, Paul, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, very famous, at least in my sort of mind, um, outspoken, um, women's rights, and married to uh, FDR uh, for how many years? Well, uh, they married in 1905, uh-huh. and he died in 1945. Uh, she went on to live another uh, 17 years. But yes, I, I would take some uh, objection to um, Ed's statement that uh, Jackie Kennedy was the most important first lady. <laughs> I, I, I would make the case that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was a more uh, significant figure politically and certainly a towering woman in both the 20th century and in all of American history. She redefined what it meant to be a first lady. Uh, she was highly controversial, very politically active, a strong voice for civil rights and women's equality, uh, and really tireless. And I, and I use that word literally. I mean, she was on the go constantly and became essentially the eyes and ears for the president who was uh, in a wheelchair and had difficulty traveling. So, uh, But there's actually a direct connection between Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt was the assistant secretary of the Navy under Wilson uh, during World War I, uh, served closely with him, and was deeply uh, affected by Wilson's League of Nations and his efforts to create a international body to prevent future wars. And, of course, uh, the failure of the League of Nations, uh, FDR right. felt, led directly to World War II, and was what motivated him to create the United Nations and why he put so much effort into the creation of the United Nations, which he saw as a way to essentially fulfill Wilson's work in trying to create an international body to prevent war. Oh, I, 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 well, I didn't know about that. I knew about Mrs. Wilson. I thought she was sort of the first... Um, I, I understood that he was like suffering from the stroke and she sort of took over the presidency. But I agree. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt is, um, in, my, in my recollection, sort of the first um, um, almost co-equal um, spouse of a president, at least in in my opinion. If we're going to get into well, controversial either. first ladies, though, we got to talk about Mary Lincoln. Yeah, no, <laughs> yes. she, was, yes. she was certainly a political partner, but got shunted aside once they were in Washington, Yeah, um, largely by the cabinet and his secretaries. But, you know, there's ample evidence that Lincoln would not have succeeded in his bid for presidency if it weren't for her acumen uh, as a hostess. You know, she's she's often derided and, and some of it might be fair, but, uh, you know, she was certainly very... Uh, astute and and tons of ambition. Um, okay, so we're going to take a break. I realize I apparently st- everyone's got their little pre- uh, favorite presidents here, and um, <laughs> I'll try not to <laughs> step into it a little more in the next half hour. Um, we'll continue our discussion after this break, and a word from our sponsor. And you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. And today we are featuring um, what I am finding a very fascinating, I hope you're finding as well, um, discussion about uh, some of our presidents um, in honor of President's Day. Um, Paul, um, FDR, uh, when he first came into, uh, became president, um, he was faced with um, uh, unemployment, uh, Dust Bowl, uh, you know, the Great Depression, um, and um, managed to um, famously pass uh, so much substantial and, and mostly uh, lasting legislation in, in, in 100 days. Um, how... How was he able to, to accomplish that? Was it um, his prior political relations, um, personality? H- how was that accomplished? Well, FDR was a, a, an extraordinary leader who came to uh, the presidency at an extraordinary time in American history. Uh, you, you have to take a moment to think about the fact that uh, un- official unemployment rate was 25%. The unofficial unemployment rate was closer to 40%. There were 2 million homeless people in America. People were literally starving in the streets. And the federal government had no role in helping them. The banks, uh, the banking system was collapsing. Uh, and FDR was the last president to be inaugurated in March. So he actually had a number of months, four months prior to taking office, in which to prepare for um, the, the, the presidency. And he put together his brains trust team of really smart people to work on what they were going to try and do. Uh, and he had massive majorities in both houses of Congress mm-hmm. who were equally, equally committed to making some kind of immediate effective change. The Hoover administration had been a disaster and had mm-hmm. been uh, completely unqualified to deal with this unprecedented economic crisis. But to give you some sense of FDR's leadership, on his first day as president, he closed every bank in America. His wow. first act was to close every bank in America because he wanted to put through the Emergency Banking Act, which would allow the banks to stabilize. Uh, as he said in his first inaugural address, famously, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself because it was fear that was driving people to try to get their money out of the banks. And, of course, the banks couldn't meet the runs mm-hmm. that were happening, and so the bank would close, and then everybody would lose their money. 
And in one of what I think is one of the greatest speeches uh, in the history of the presidency, his first fireside chat, which he gives about eight days after he takes office. It's a Sunday night. Uh, They're going to reopen the banks the next Monday morning. And he goes on uh, the radio, and in this completely new way of using radio as a communication tool, talks to the American people. And as he says, I want to spend a few minutes to talk about banking. And he explains why the banking crisis is... um, easy to solve because it's all about people's confidence. Um, and he says, you know, it's safer to put your money in the bank than to keep it under your mattress. And it's it's a brilliant speech. And uh, as Will Rogers famously said later, um, he explained the banking so crisis, crisis so well that even the bankers could understand it. Um, <laughs> and the result was that when the banks reopened the next day, over the next week, millions of dollars flowed back into the banking system uh, because the American public believed in his his message. And that was just, so the Emergency Banking Act was just one of 15 major pieces of legislation that were passed in that first 100 days that covered everything. He tried to prevent people from losing their mortgages on their homes so they wouldn't be homeless. He tried to change the way workers were paid. He tried to change the stability for farms to make the farm system more stabilized. He tried to uh, fundamentally change the way the federal government interacted with the American citizen. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. He created the Securities and Exchange Commission to prevent speculation on Wall Street. And perhaps his most popular uh, and long-lasting legislation in the first 100 days was the Beer and Wine Revenue Act, where he essentially legalized alcohol after uh, many years of prohibition. Well, that would make him very popular. (laughs) With everyone but the bootleggers, right? Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Joe Kennedy became the first head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, so he took care of them, too. There you go. Oh, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, Yeah, he certainly did have his ties um, to some interesting um, folks there. Um, You know, I I think of FDR, I I think of um, the... Tennessee Valley Authority and other, like, I don't want to say make work, but um, there's a lot of uh, buildings that are built and art that you would see on walls from that era where he, it seemed to me, he put people back to work and he used the federal government to create um, structures and... and, uh, He fundamentally changed literally the, the landscape of America through mm-hmm. the Civilian Conservation Corps, through the Works Projects Administration, through a number of his other projects. The TVA, of course, one of the most important of the uh, first hundred days legislation. It's hard for people today to understand what it was like, particularly in the rural South, uh, that had no electricity. You know, about 40% of the population was living without running water. He spent a lot of time in Warm Springs, Georgia. Um, because of his polio, and he created essentially a polio uh, rehabilitation clinic there in you know one of the poorest sections of Georgia, and he traveled around there and he loved that area. But he saw a level of poverty that he had never experienced before. You know, these sharecroppers living in literally one-room tar paper shacks with eight children, and desperate and completely dependent on the weather and the ability to feed their children. And he knew that if he could bring electricity and bring commerce into these areas through the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, by creating electricity um, that was not being controlled by commercial entities but being controlled by cooperatives, that it would fundamentally change the economy of the South. And it was transformational. 
uh, and the Civilian Conservation Corps, you know, this was a, a million young men being paid a dollar a day to build trails and, and um, change national parks and create bridges and lodges and the Works Project Administration, which built schools and post offices and and uh, airports, and it was just an unbelievable effort uh, to transform America. And one of the reasons we're having an infrastructure crisis today mm-hmm. is because of the success of his policies 80 years ago. Right. And those structures and those buildings and those bridges are now in need of rebuilding. Yeah, they, they are. Uh, you can recognize the era of them. Um, I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about our um, other famous president. But, Paul, I know that you can you briefly touch on um, there's a couple we talked about myths, but there's also a couple of conspiracies around FDR that have uh, and his presidency in the war that have developed. If you want to um, touch on that, because I know it's important to dispel uh, those um, uh, wrong facts. Well, all three of these presidents, Washington, Lincoln, and uh, Roosevelt, all uh, part of their great leadership is associated with wars. Um, And for FDR, obviously, this was World War II. And uh, World War II started in Europe, and many Americans did not want to be involved in that war. Um, And so when Germany uh, invaded Poland and then France and the lowlands and started bombing England, uh, there was a large faction of Americans who did not want to get involved with the war. um, But... Roosevelt knew that eventually America would get involved in the war. He started a peacetime draft. He started rebuilding the military, and there was a tremendous amount of resistance. Uh, and when he ran for re-election in 1940 on, for the third term, uh, he promised that he would never send American soldiers uh, overseas unless we were attacked, but he wanted to send weapons and tanks and planes to support the Allies. And so when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, um, that brought America into the war because we had been attacked. Now, after the war, um, the conspiracy theories grew up that FDR knew about the Japanese attack ahead of time and allowed them to attack the Navy uh, to get us into the war. Uh, and, And this is a, you know... Has, this conspiracy theory has, you know, cropped up over the years, and it's completely false. FDR loved the Navy. As I said earlier, he, not only was he assistant secretary of the Navy, but he collected Navy prints and Navy ship models from the time he was a young boy. He was there for the keel laying of the Arizona. He knew many of these naval captains. He loved the Navy and would never have allowed any damage to happen to those ships. Um, but like all conspiracy theories, there are elements of fact which can be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is that uh, the U.S. Navy and the British Navy were tracking a Japanese fleet. Uh, now, it was a fleet that was actually heading south through the South China Sea, and both the British and the Americans thought the Japanese were more likely to attack um, in Indonesia or in Southeast Asia, where there were a lot of natural resources. And they honestly had looked at it and didn't think the Japanese would be capable of striking Pearl Harbor. Right. So the theory is that, oh, they knew where the fleet was. Well, they knew where a fleet was, but not the fleet that attacked Pearl Harbor. So this theory, you know, this conspiracy, I think all presidencies have some, all successful presidencies have some level of um, conspiracy theories and uh, rewriting of history. Uh, But I think when you really look at the evidence, and we have it all right here in our library, uh, there's absolutely nothing to support that. Yeah, I sort of vaguely remember growing up, and there was a theory about, someone on the radio and they were warned and 
by telegram or something and, and did nothing. That was that was one of the theories uh, floating around in the 70s. And, and, well, and there, was, there, there was information, for example, right. the, um, the American ambassador to Japan uh, right. did send a message back in the summer of 1941 saying that he had heard that uh, the Japanese were considering attacking Pearl Harbor. The Army and the Navy ran war games about this and looked at their mm-hmm. Japanese capabilities and analyzed what they built, what the likelihood was of them attacking Pearl Harbor. And everyone agreed that it was not likely. They didn't have the capability of pulling it off. And, in fact, there were radar installations that were not working properly that day, which if they had been... Uh, working properly would have mm-hmm. uh, been able to detect the planes earlier. And, of course, both the Army commander and the Navy commander were dismissed um, uh, and, uh, you know, forced from their positions and right. what was a highly controversial set of decisions. So it was a complicated moment right. um, and a, a terrible tragedy for America, uh, but it also uh, it led to one of the greatest speeches in American history when <laughs> Uh, he, the Pearl Harbor speech, the Day of Infamy speech, where mm-hmm. he really rallied the United States and said, we've been attacked, but we will win this war. And I think it's similar to the speeches that President Lincoln gave as he was facing, you know, really the gravest crisis in American history, the Civil War. Oh, Paul, that was a nice segue to, uh, <laughs> to Aaron. Um, we're, and that was perfect. Um, we're going to stop and, uh, and hear from our sponsor. When we return, we're going to talk about um, President Lincoln, and uh, you've been listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, and we're entering our final segment of the show. Um, Paul mentioned um, President Lincoln, and um, as I said earlier, I'm pleased to welcome the CEO of Lincoln's Cottage here in Washington, D.C., which um, uh, I didn't realize was originally built for a Riggs, um, right. because I remember right. Riggs Bank yeah. uh, uh, growing up. Um and so, um, tell us, uh, when I did my research of, of Lincoln's Cottage, uh, it sort of reminded me a little bit of um, what the Holocaust Museum does, mm-hmm. which is takes the themes of the past and interprets it into the present. Um, and uh, you did about uh, teenage slavery, uh uh, in the present day with students. Um, how, how is the approach of Lincoln's Cottage uh, instructing both about the president and also about present day events? Yeah. Well, I think, I think part, of, part of why we are what we are today is because of when President Lincoln's Cottage was developed and opened to the public. So, you know, we didn't have a house that was full of original artifacts. Um, and rather than seeing that as a handicap, we thought, well, what is it about this place that really makes it important? And it's the ideas that Lincoln nurtured there about freedom, 
um, about democracy, about the role of citizens, um, about the role of the government. Um, you know, he something he's actually criticized for often is how dramatically he expanded um, the federal government and and maybe even executive power. But it's it's those enduring themes um, and Lincoln's example in the place that really informs what we do today. So the tour of the cottage, for example, is very driven by ideas, um, Lincoln's ideas and how the past really informs our present. And if you don't have that understanding of your history, you really can't move forward. So when we, um, you know, on our tours, we talk about the Emancipation Proclamation, obviously, since Lincoln developed that and issued the preliminary one while living there. Um, but it was important always to talk about the fact that that didn't end slavery. Mm -hmm. um, and so we always talk to visitors about the 13th Amendment really being required to legally abolish slavery. But unfortunately, what we were finding is that um, people were interpreting that to mean slavery ended. And we all know that just because something is illegal or even unconstitutional doesn't mean it it stops happening. There's not a switch that you're flipping. Uh, and so we felt an imperative to talk about, for example, where we are as a country on the issue of slavery today um, and where we are with racial issues as a society today. And so a lot of our programs and exhibits explore that. And you mentioned um, our Students Opposing Slavery program, which won a presidential medal in 2016. And what we're doing there is really empowering these youth leaders um, with the resources and the tools and the network they need to make an impact on the issue of modern slavery today. Hmm. Um, what I find um, kind of fascinating is that um, maybe it's fortune, maybe uh, maybe it's uh, who knows, but we seem to get the right president at a critical juncture. We have Washington at the beginning and FDR during a time of um, when there was real evil in the world. Um, and then we have uh, President Lincoln um, trying to manage the country breaking apart and yeah. at war with each other. Yeah. And he always looks so sad uh, yeah, and it's solitary. <laughs> you know, it just, that must have been, I, I just, I can't even imagine. That's a, that's a good point. And, you know, there have been books that have come out about, you know, was Lincoln clinically depressed, for example. And when you think about what they were surrounded by, um, and even Mary Lincoln, you know, half of her family was fighting for the Confederacy. And she didn't really feel like she could effectively mourn them. But, um, you know, Lincoln took this daily commute. Living at the cottage meant that he had this three-mile commute most days into the city. And because of that, he was putting himself into contact with refugee camps of formerly enslaved men, women, and children. He was seeing caravans of wounded soldiers um, coming back from the front lines of war into the area hospitals. Uh, but he was also passing Walt Whitman. Mm. who was in the city. And Whitman writes this amazing essay that starts out, I see the president each day as he goes on his commute. And as only a poet can, he describes Lincoln's face and says that, you know, one of the great masters needs to be called back to paint him because no photograph is, has captured his expression. And he talks about the deep cut lines and he right. says, and his, all, his eyes always with a deep latent sadness in the expression. And that's just what he's observing while Lincoln's writing on his daily commute. Yeah, I um, I was surprised to well, maybe not surprised. Um, I was unaware um that on his way back from the cottage, there was an attempted assassination, um, unsuccessful. That's at right. That time. <laughs> um, how many uh, attempts were there on that president? That's that's the one that we know of that's documented, and there there are a couple versions of it, which you know corroborates it a little bit. 
um, though, you know, they vary slightly. And the idea was that because of he's because he's doing this commute, you know, it right. wasn't a secret. Right. And and for the entire first summer they're living out there, there was no security detail. No American president had ever ever been assassinated before. Um, and so by the end of that summer, there have been enough letters written to the White House um, about threats to Lincoln's safety uh, that he has assigned a permanent security detail, the presidential guard, and they uh, they ride with him you know, in and out of the city or in and out of the city center. Uh, But it is, you know, Lincoln actually tried to avoid it at first. He didn't like this idea of this huge grand entourage. It didn't seem, you know, maybe appropriate to him. Uh, And so there are some hilarious stories of him getting up and taking off down the road before the soldiers could get ready. (laughs) And then they have to take off, you know, the road after him. But he was an incredibly accessible president. uh, And, that you know, we don't, Think of the presidency and the White House in those same terms today, but people to just walk in. There are great stories of people just, you know, coming into the White House to show a relative around and they come across Lincoln, you know, eating a plate of beans in a room and he invites them to sit down. Even though they moved out to the soldier's home, he was no less accessible. People had to find their way to get out there. Um, But there are wonderful stories of people coming upon the president out there and, um, you know, just being welcomed in. I've tried to figure out what, the thinking is that for those that aren't in DC, um, basically it's it's due north a couple miles is right. the cottage. Um, so it, it's not it wasn't out in the country. Uh, wasn't it's not near a lake or a pond. What was the what was the draw of just going a couple miles yeah. north? Um, well, it's um, it's three hundred feet above sea level, which in DC makes us the third highest area in Washington. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it that, actually it was yes, that's true. It was considered, <laughs> uh, you know, newspapers at the time do yeah. refer to it as a healthier location. Oh, interesting. Um, and then, you know, they intended to move out there in 1861, but the outbreak of Civil War changed their plans. Uh, that becomes more urgent in '62. Their son Willie Lincoln died. Um, mm. It's possible, if not likely, that it um, that his illness was due to tainted drinking water. Um, you know, there are livestock and troops along the waterways downtown. It was marsh-like in that part of D.C. Um, people call it a swamp. Other people refer to it as a marsh. Uh, but so there were specific health reasons and then personal reasons um, for the Lincolns to remove themselves up to the soldier's home. By a contemporary account, it was 10 degrees cooler out there than it was downtown. Really? Yeah. And I, we still, in many ways, feel that today. There's a beautiful breeze that comes up the hill um, and so, you know, it was it was known as Washington County in Lincoln's time. So it's mm-hmm. in the district, but it wasn't Washington City. OK, um, but uh, they were large estates. And Riggs's former business or business partner, William Corcoran, owned the estate to the south. Uh, he was a Confederate sympathizer and left the United States during the Civil War. And his property was turned into Harewood Hospital, Civil War Hospital. Oh, interesting, yeah. because there's an old cemetery right nearby That's that right. was probably there. And then you had... Uh, the veterans, uh, right. so it wasn't a happy location. No, um, there were, yeah, there were 100 to 200 disabled veterans living yeah. right next door um, and, you know, just within, you know, maybe a dozen feet of where the Lincolns themselves were living. And then the cemetery, as you mentioned, um, both the very historic Rock Creek Church Cemetery, right. but also the first cemetery for, for U.S. soldiers. For U.S. soldiers. The predecessor of Arlington. And as I understand, there are still veterans living at the old soldier's home. Yeah. Um, One thing that helps us emphasize, you know, that continued thread of history is that the campus still serves the same purpose. Um, There are about 500 veterans that live on the grounds today. 
um, and the cemetery itself is still active. For those that want to visit, is you, um, I live about a mile just west of it or so. Um, as you head toward the entrance, mm-hmm. it looks almost like going into a Walter Reed or some other form yeah. of uh, military but uh, facilities. So you can just drive on through to go to so there uh, is, Lincoln's Cottage? Yeah, that's a great, um, you know, there it is a gated federal campus and there is a security checkpoint. Uh-huh. Um, but visitors present Lincoln's Cottage are obviously allowed onto the campus um, and we have a you know, ample parking and the visitor center in the cottage right there. So it, it took a few years for us uh-huh. to get a sign on the outside, letting people know we were in there. Um, and so that well, was a, a little walled out. Yeah, right, right. But, um, you know, uh, that has always been a hurdle that uh-huh. there's this person, you know, you have to get past that physical barrier. Um, but we've, you know, we welcome over 30,000 visitors every single year who seek us out from all across the country and around the world. Um, so, uh, you know, once you come out, um, you know, it's a very welcoming place. Oh, wow. Um, I wish we had another hour. Uh, I've, I've, um, uh, the three of you and your knowledge and, um, and uh, the information about these, these presidents, um, for me, it's been one of my most favorite hours I've had, uh, on the radio and I certainly appreciate your time. Um, I hope maybe we'll be able to do this one day soon. Um, and um, I hope I did my mom proud, the amateur historian in my family. I didn't fumble too many dates. Um, but that's all we have uh, for the show today. Thank you for joining us. And Fed Talk has been brought to you by Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. And thank you for joining us. <laughs>